Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Casey Patrick, and joining me today is one of our clinical chiefs, Jordan Anderson. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to dive into obstetrics part two. Our paramedics here at MCHD have made it clear this is a topic that they want us to discuss on the podcast, and I want to clear it up front that I am not an obstetrics expert by any means, but these are cases in pre-hospital and emergency care that make us nervous as all get out. So it's important for us to review, to talk about, even though it's uncommon, uh, it's one that we don't want to go in blind. We, want, we don't want to go in without at least some mental practice and some review of vocabulary and some of the basics. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about uh, delivery vocabulary. We always start with vocabulary and some of the foundational, foundational stuff. We're going to talk about delivery basics. Uh, we're going to talk about delivery disasters and finish up with postpartum hemorrhage. Before we get into obstetrics part two, real quick review on obstetrics part one for you folks out there that didn't listen to that one. We talked about some of the core principles of caring for pregnant patients. They're hyperdynamic, so dissection and aneurysms are on the list, probably move up the list. They're hypercoagulable, so they can clot, PEs, DVTs, even venous sinus thrombosis. They have increased intra-abdominal and intrathoracic pressure, so they're going to have quicker respiratory compromise in situations where uh, the respiratory status is tenuous. Uh, we want to get them in the left lateral decubitus position to get the baby in the uterus off the IVC. And some of those all combine all four of those points together. They're just high-risk patients in general. So we want to be aggressive with IV access. We want to be overcautious and overaggressive with assessing their ABCs. Because, again, pregnant patients are high-risk patients. You're dealing, with, you're dealing with two, basically. So pregnant patients make us more nervous, but it's because they're at higher risk. So everything that um, we consider in an average patient is, is at more risk for, for just, occurring in the pregnant patient. Just amped up a little bit, yeah. So one of the most amped up cases we could have would have to actually be deliver uh, the child. So why don't we go in some delivery uh, vocabulary and some basics knowing that this is not an ACLS course. We're not going to talk about um, cardiac arrest in the infant or, or that kind of specific care, yeah, but we do want to talk about the, the delivery yeah. and how to maneuver that. No PALS, no ACLS. This is not a neonatal resuscitation talk. This is going to be strictly confined to the, the delivering mother. So let's hit some delivery vocabulary uh, in that with that mindset. The umbilical cord starting out is is one of those topics that you know, how clinically relevant is this? I don't really know. This is really more of a, for uh, you new medics out there taking, taking exams, um, two arteries and one vein. Um, you can access the umbilical vein uh, in the emergency department setting as, as central access. Uh, not something that I've done since uh, 2006 or 2007. Again, these are not super common cases. I, you know, you paramedics out there are going to deliver more babies in the pre-hospital setting really than, than we're going to deliver in the emergency department. So you folks are really the experts in this, but know, know to check the umbilical cord again, two arteries and one vein. And in all reality, Jordan, this is like, like you described earlier, more likely a, it's more likely a test question than, than real life. And, and here at MCHD, uh, we do have the easy IO. And so the, the distal femur is appropriate access in a neonate as well. So not likely that we're going to be accessing uh, neonatal veins uh, in the near future, but it, it's, it is an option. It is a medical uh, yeah, knowledge we, or fact that yeah, we need to know. It, 
if it's a test question you get right, you're welcome. Uh, Braxton Hicks contractions versus true contractions. Another term for Braxton Hicks, false labor. Really, the, the terminology here isn't as important as knowing when, when to have a higher suspicion or a higher concern that the mother is in true labor. And that's to know that the more regular, the more intense, and the more frequent the contractions are, the more likely that it is true labor as opposed to false labor or Braxton Hicks. Braxton Hicks are uh, most, mostly self-limited. They're going to be irregular, uh, varying in intensity, uh, and most times resolve on their own. If the patient says, hey, this started six hours ago, and initially they lasted for five seconds, and they were five minutes apart, and now they last for 30 seconds, and they're one minute apart, and they have a clear, regular progression in intensity and length, uh, probably probably true contractions and true labor. Never so, a time that, that we'll diagnose someone with Braxton Hicks, but I guess it's, uh, it, it's knowledgeable to know that your risk factor of true contractions or, or when you're going to have yeah, to deliver not, babies out there. But no. We're not going to go in the house and say, uh, Mom, we think you got Braxton Hicks contractions. We, why don't you sign this refusal here and, right. and, and we'll, we'll move on our way. You're going to take them in, but your, uh, your antenna is going to go up much higher, much quicker when she says they're becoming more frequent, they're becoming more intense, and they're coming very regularly, as opposed to I had three an hour ago and one this hour, and they've been weak and and variable. It's, you know, they're getting a ride at the hospital, no doubt, but probably not as high level of concern. How does the, the stages of labor progress once you know once we move from okay, these sound like this is true labor, true contractions. How is labor going to progress? It's going to progress from stage one contraction to dilation, stage two from dilation to delivery, and stage three from presenting part to delivery of the placenta. A little bit of obvious vocabulary that you folks all know. Presenting part is the part that comes out of the vagina, so I wouldn't mind to deliver a baby. It's been been quite a while since I did, but I, for all the metric gods that are listening, it's going to provide a delivering mother to my emergency department. I do want to put one caveat in my request, if possible, and that's that the presenting part is a head. I do not want any presenting uh, bums or feet, if possible. And then crowning is just the act of seeing seeing the head at the, uh, at the vaginal introitus. So just some foundational vocabulary to sort of, sort of get us started. So, so let's get started on, on the actual delivery. If, if we do have a, a mother that's in labor, um, we have crowning, uh, what, what do we do next? What do we, what do, we do before that time, and, and what do we do when we get there? So when you mentioned before that time, how, how can you deal with delivery before the crowning part is present and before you have that patient? I think that's probably the most important point to make in this entire discussion is that you don't really want to wait until you have a delivering mother in the back of your truck to think through what you would do in this situation. This is one, as with any other infrequent, high stress, high risk patient, whether it's surgical crike or uh, airway management, things that we don't see every day, but make us very nervous. We need to run mental reps. We need to know our equipment. We need to think through what we would do in these situations so that the last time we thought about this wasn't the last, wasn't, you know, 18 months, two years ago, the last time we, we transported a pregnant mom. So how do you do that? You have to know your delivery kit, know your supplies, know where they are, know what's in that location. So you don't have to spend mental effort looking for things that you need or wondering whether things that you need are present. So what's going to be in a delivery kit? That's going to vary from service to service. Gauze, cap, blanket, cord clamps, scissors, bulb suction, all those all those 
classic things that we, we need in the delivery. Know where those are in your bag. Know where those are in your truck. Know what's, what's there so that that's not part of what you have to spend your mental effort on. Secondly, in, in any delivery, we want to make sure that we've got one medic for each patient. So this is one where if we think we're anywhere near uh, delivering mother, we want to call in a second truck because we're going to, while we're not talking about the baby today, we're going to have to deal with mom and baby. So think through the supplies that you have. Think through as we talk about these uh, delivery basics, think through where you need each supply and like where you would find those. And again, mental reps in this situation, because it's an infrequent presenting problem, this is going to be one where we're going to have to mentally practice uh, to, to stay up and to stay, to stay comfortable. So first of all, with any patient, we're going to start with our history. Um, we talked in obstetrics part one about GP annotation. So gravita para, how many pregnancies, how many deliveries. This is one where we're really not getting into spontaneous abortions, elective abortions, twin pregnancies, getting complex with what our, G, what our gravita and our para is. This is just one where we want to know how many babies his mom had, right? Because if mom's had one, probably got more time. If mom's on baby seven, it could be coming any second. So just make a quick note of how, of how many babies, you know, like we talked about in delivery vocabulary, think about contractions, the intensity and the frequency, make sure that you get a good history on that for mom. And then prenatal care. Prenatal care is important. And you know the exact nature of the prenatal care, when the last ultrasound was, that's not as important as is it present or not. Did mom have prenatal care? Because Moms without prenatal care, again, this is a high-risk situation to begin with, and when there's been no prenatal care, that risk level goes up even more. Is water broken, right? That's another timing timing question, right? If the mom's a G7, contractions are constant and increasing and now up to one every minute, and the water's broken, like all these things sort of combine together to give us an idea of how much time do we have and are we going to be delivering this or do we have time to get to the emergency department or to L&D? So history exam is the you know is the abdomen firm. Can you confirm that what mom, what mom is describing to you as a contraction is an actual contraction? So when oh yeah oh yeah it hurts it hurts it hurts and then you put your hand on the on the uterus on the abdomen and you feel uh, that uterus contracting down and you know pretty rock hard, you know that it's it's the real deal. And then look obviously for signs of impending delivery. Check for crowning. Does the mom feel like she needs to push? Oftentimes they'll describe it as feeling like the need to have a bowel movement. Um, ask about those things. Look for those things. And then positioning and adequate light, if at all possible. Now, I know that that's, uh, you're going to say, yeah, that's coming from the emergency doc. It's got two nurses and a bed and a lamp on the ceiling. I, I, I get it. Um, in the back of the truck, we're, we're operating with less space, less light, and and uh, by definition and by just the nature of it, a, a more austere environment, but it doesn't mean we can't try. So whether that means flashlights, whether that means whatever you have to do to make, uh, to make your best effort. So, so you've got mom on the stretcher, you got her in the back of the truck, make sure that we're, we're supine and flat, make sure that our, her knees are drawn up so that you can get a good look at the perineum, make sure there's not crowning or a presenting part and use whatever, whatever light you have. If you have to you know, you don't have an overhead light like in emergency department bed too, but maybe you grab a first responder and a couple strong flashlights and, you know, make do with the best you got. And finally, it's a slippery process. There's a lot of fluid. You're going to need plenty of towels. So you've got the mom in the back of the ambulance. You've got the best lighting that you can. You've got all your towels ready and you look down and you see 
a tuft of hair like Dr. Dixon noted in Obstetrics Part 1 and there's a baby coming. What do you do next? Well, on the whole, everything throughout the delivery process should be gentle. There is no jerking, no intense hard pulling. This everything should be done gent with gentle, constant pressure. We're not uh, trying to uh, reduce a femur fracture here or reduce a shoulder. Uh, anything that's done in a non-gentle fashion is going to put, put us at risk for things like inversion of the uterus, a tearing of the umbilical cord from the placenta, not what we want to do. So gentle pressure to the head, support the head throughout. So head support's important because the baby can't support their head. The, the head's the biggest part. Their next neck musculature is not developed enough to, you know, to support their own head. So you want to provide support, gentle support to the head throughout the delivery. As the head rotates for shoulder presentation, you want to look for nuchal cord. So the, as the head delivers and you get enough head out, you want to slide your hand along the neck and make sure there is no nuchal cord. What's the nuchal cord? A nuchal cord is when the cord is wrapped around the neck of the baby as opposed to free floating. And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. You want to guide the head down to deliver the anterior shoulder first. Then you want to guide the head upward to deliver the posterior shoulder second. And then when the baby is out, we want to clamp the cord, cut the cord, massage the uterus, the, the, uh, the placental uh, delivery, the delivery of the baby is, is going to be, there's going to be, you know, a fair amount of blood. And so you want to help mom out all you can with contracting the uterus down and stopping that bleeding with massage and then deliver the placenta as with the head, as with the delivery of, of the fetus, we're not pulling anything in, a, in an abrupt or a hard fashion. We want to gently keep our hand on the umbilical cord and allow the placenta to deliver itself. The mom's uterus will contract and deliver that placenta for you. You're not, you don't have to reach in and grab it and pull it out. Because again, if you rupture the umbilical cord at the ba base of the placenta, that's, uh, that's some, some serious, serious bleeding. Um, and then you got the baby out. We're not talking about the baby in general, but what's the what's the one key? You got to keep the baby warm. So in that in that delivery kit, you're going to have blankets and caps. Uh, their homeostatic uh, temperature regulation uh, mechanisms are not fully developed, so the baby can get cold pretty darn quickly. So wrap them up, put a cap on them. One side of me is picturing a very organized, gentle delivery uh, with, the, with the head presenting first and everything working well. The other side of me that's, is kind of that, picturing disasters. That, so. That's what I'm asking for. So my delivery request, again, to the OB gods, uh, I want the delivery that we just discussed. Just like you said, nice, pressure, gentle pressure to the head, support the head, deliver the anterior, deliver the posterior shoulder, clamp the cord, massage the uterus, placenta delivers on its own. Everyone's happy. It's a joyous uh uh, occasion for mom and the crew and everybody has the has the shift of the last six months and it's all grand. So we're we're hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. So so some of the things go through that, some of the worst. Yeah, some of the things that make it a, deli a delivery disaster. We already talked about the first one on the list here, and that's the nuchal cord. That's just the nuchal cord or the cord around the neck. Um, the one difference in the situation where we have a nuchal cord, we talked about in the nice easy delivery that you deliver the fetus, clamp the cord cut the cord, then deliver the placenta. So the baby's out before you cut the cord and run to the mill, nice, easy delivery. In a situation where you've got a nuchal cord, it's pretty obvious you don't want cord around the neck that's going to decrease perfusion and strangle the baby, right? So you want to clamp and cut the cord during delivery. 
and the situation of the nuchal cord. So one seemingly mild but very important difference there. What if the presenting part is the cord? So you, instead of seeing the tuft of hair, you see the cord presenting with the tuft of hair basically behind that, and that's what we call prolapsed cord. Um, that is an absolute uh, potential disaster in emergency situation. Uh, and there are a couple very important points here that may seem minor, but really can get us in trouble if we manipulate the cord. If you manipulate the cord, you can get vasospasm. So we don't want to touch the cord. We want to relieve the pressure from the cord. So we want to touch the head, elevate the head, and relieve the, the tamponade or the pressure on the cord from the presenting part. So we want to put our, put our fingers on the baby's head, push the baby back up inside, and then let mom's positioning help us as well. We want to get her knees to her chest. We want to put her in Trendelenburg and you know make all the positioning changes we can as well to try to relieve the pressure on the cord. Because again, that's all to common sense wise, increase perfusion to the fetus. Right. You've seen this in every emergency department uh, TV show there is where the moms need a chest and the medic or doctor has their fingers or hand in the vagina to gently relieve pressure on the head. And, and that's what we're talking about here, prolapse cord. And actually the TV's got the treatment right on that. They need to... Yeah, that's uh, one that, yeah, that's the one when you do see it in the show, that's what you need right, to do. It's pretty it's, accurate treatment. It's not someone getting a heart transplant in the emergency department, which... I don't, maybe that happens out there somewhere, but not anywhere where, uh, where I've ever worked. So again, pretty simple. Don't touch the cord and get the head off the cord the best you can. Uh, what's another, uh, one of the you know, more common delivery disasters. And that's when the baby gets stuck. We want to support the head, deliver the head, check for nuchal cord, deliver the anterior shoulder, the posterior shoulder. What happens when those shoulders get stuck? That's what's known as shoulder dystocia. If you want to read or look at methods for uh, delivery and shoulder dystocia situations, there are multiple uh, maneuvers and tricks to the trade as far as shoulder dystocia goes. I'm a fan of knowing one method and knowing it well. Uh, and luckily in our situation here at, at MCHD, we have relatively short transfer times. So I don't suspect that our paramedics are going to need to progress from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D, because thankfully we're going to be in our our emergency departments and our L&D units pretty quickly. So the couple uh, techniques and uh, options for shoulder dystocia that I want, I want our MCHD medics to be familiar with is the McRoberts maneuver or basically hyperflexion of the legs. So we always want knee to, knees to chest, but in situations where the shoulder is stuck, we really want to hyperflex the legs and that's gonna help to open uh, the, the pelvic outlet and allow for the shoulders to squeeze through. Um, at the same time we hyperflex the legs, we also want to apply suprapubic pressure, again, to try to, you know, talking about millimeters to centimeters here, we don't need to open up the pelvic inlet feet. It's, you know, the fetus is not a, it's not a, you know, it's eight pounds, 10 pounds. It's not a mountain that we have to move here. Sometimes just a few millimeters are enough to squeeze the shoulders through. So by hyperflexing those legs and really, I'd put a person you know, if you have a first responder, uh, a couple couple firefighters available, assign one to each each foot and have them physically hyperflex uh, mom's uh, mom's legs. And then when we talk about suprapubic pressure, it's important to remember that we're not pushing on the uterus. We don't want a ruptured uterus. That's that's uh, a much bigger trouble, much bigger problem than shoulder dystocia. The pressure that we're uh, aiming for is suprapubic pressure on the pubic symphysis itself. Again, trying to open up the outlet just a few millimeters, a few centimeters more. 
Um, there are multiple other, again, techniques, r rotating the shoulders from inside the vagina. Uh, I, I don't want to get into those because, again, I think those are ones that I would be uncomfortable doing without the guidance of an obstetrician and surely would be uncomfortable teaching uh, in a pre-hospital setting. So prolapse cord makes us nervous. Shoulder dystocia, when the baby gets stuck, make us, makes us nervous. And finally, what also makes us really nervous is when it's not split anterior. So we like to see the tuft of hair. And when it's not the tuft of hair, like we talked about earlier, it's a foot or a hand or a bum, breech delivery is, is definitely nerve-wracking. And breech delivery, while not common, uh, it happens, especially in patients with no prenatal care because they've not been targeted for C-section, uh, targeted for, uh, you know, uh, maneuvers to try to, you know, get the baby into an OA position. So mom never knew that the butt was first or the hand was foot or the hand was first or the, the feet were first. So we may be the first ones to find that out. If we're in a situation where breach delivery is imminent, obviously we want to try to get to L&D as quickly as possible. But if the baby's coming, then just fall back on the general rules we talked about before. We're not pulling anything. We're not jerking anything. We're not, uh, this is not tug of war game. We want to gently support, especially the head throughout, throughout the delivery and allow the baby to come on its own. We actually had a breach delivery uh, last week and Luckily, you do you deliver the baby the same way. Just resist the urge to pull on the feet, right? That's just the you want to you want to tug and pull, but um, obviously that would could cause complications, so you yeah. don't. But delivered about ten minutes or so after we got to L and D. So. Yeah, I say we delivered. Yeah, the hospital we brought them ten minutes, so some crew avoided a breach delivery by ten minutes. Wow, that's, so uh, that's pretty little, exciting little, stuff. A little too close for comfort. You call it exciting. I, I, you can you can have the breach deliveries. I'm I'm not interested in those. So let's wrap it up with postpartum hemorrhage. So you've got, the, you've got the baby out, and then mom is bleeding like stink. Now, what is bleeding like stink? Because we, we talk about, oh, it's a lot of bleeding. But how do we classify postpartum hemorrhage? So is 100 cc's, 1,000 cc's, 2 liters? What's, what's our number, Jordan? So it's hard to, hard to even gauge exactly how many mils or cc's of blood are on the, on the ground or on your towel. Um, but if you could, classically, the answer is 500 mils. Less than 500 is, is a normal amount of of postpartum hemorrhage and anything above that. So that's your textbook uh, test answer. And this makes sense. The uterus and the placenta get a liter of blood per minute at delivery, at term. So this is as highly vascular as it gets. So what cause, what are our causes for postpartum hemorrhage? Well, our number one is uterine, uterine atony. And when the uterus basically just gets floppy and doesn't contract down. And that's 80% actually of postpartum hemorrhages. Um, if you want to a uh, little mnemonic to remember, think about the four T's. So we talked about uterine atony, so the first T is tone, so they're just a floppy uterus that's lost its tone. That's why we massage the uterus, to try to you know, stimulate that contraction, to stimulate the uterine increased tone. That allows us to clamp down and, and stop the bleeding. The third, or second, third, and fourth T's are or tissue, excuse me, trauma and traction. So tissue makes sense if you have retained products of conception, so you have placenta that's left in the uterus, it can't contract fully, then you're going to have increased bleeding. Trauma, obvious uterine rupture. So let's say you've got a shoulder dystocia and you're pushing on the uh, uterus instead of the suprapubic area, instead of the, pu the pubic symphysis, you can just basically rupture the uterus itself. So a ruptured uterus is going to bleed. That makes sense. And then the fourth T is traction. So you've had a footling breach and you decided you were going to be a superhero and get that baby out and you grabbed its foot and you pulled like, like all heck, 
Well, you inverted the uterus when you did that. So traction, too much traction can cause uterine inversion. And that's, that's bad news. That's you, if the uterus is inverted, there's no way it contract, can contract and stop bleeding. So four T's, tone, tissue, trauma, and traction. What's our treatment for postpartum hemorrhage? Here at MCHD, our treatment's gonna be uh, IV fluids, uterine massage. If you've got visible external lacerations that you see, you can pack those and make sure you count your four by fours. Uh, for listeners out there that have oxytocin or pitocin, in your protocols, that's another option. Uh, we don't carry it here at MCHD. Uh, so for uh, the MCHD paramedics listening out there, that's not an option for us. Uh, for you folks listening out there far and wide, if you have Pitocin, that would probably be your, your third line option for this. If you, if you, you know, start fluids, you massage, you still got, you know, you're at a liter or two liters of blood loss, you can start your Pitocin. And also another option potentially down the road is gonna be TXA. And we've talked about TXA in prior podcasts here on the show. And uh, we don't have TXA indicated for postpartum hemorrhage here at MCHD yet, but uh, the data seems to be suggesting that that may be a future option. So keep your eyes and ears open there. So if the mom's uh, bleeding postpartum, you'll need to get on the road, which is probably what you want to do anyway. Uh, do some bundle massage along the way and, um, and breastfeeding encourages uterine contraction as well. So. Yeah, it's actually, that's the nature's way of stimulating, you know, we are, not my body, but females produce oxytocin naturally in this situation. And, and you're exactly right, Jordan. Uh, nursing and, and suckling is the prime way to, to, uh, to stimulate that. So I would definitely encourage uterine massage, IV fluids, quick, you know, not messing around the scene in these patients and early breastfeeding for sure. And that puts us at a good point, I think, to wrap up. Uh, hit the high points for us, Jordan, and we'll uh, we'll close this one out. Let's see if I can wrap this up. So before you get there, know what you're coming into, right? Uh, do some mental exercises and, and and know what you're going to be doing. Know your delivery kit. Know your supplies. Know where they are. Kind of have a game plan before you get there. Uh, when you are delivering the baby, always support the head. Don't ever pull. Don't get too impatient. Um, if you do have a, a, a difficult delivery, if you have prolapse cord, if you're not going to want to touch that, you're going to want to uh, gently uh, push on the baby's head to, to keep from depressing the cord. Uh, when the mom does deliver, you want to massage the uterus, try and uh, stop the postpartum bleeding. Um, and one thing we haven't talked about maybe is preeclampsia or eclampsia. Does that ever play a part in this? Yeah, I mean, we for those of you that listened to, to part one, this is just to wrap us up really and to, to close out all the way. We talked about preeclampsia and eclampsia in part one, but I think when we mentioned delivery and progress all the way to delivery, it's a good time for us to remind all the listeners out there that preeclampsia and eclampsia can occur and often occurs, more commonly occurs in the postpartum setting. So this is one that we don't need to flush from our mind once the baby is born. If you run on that mother in a week and she's got a severe headache and lower extremity edema and a blood pressure of 180 over 90, don't forget that the preeclampsia and eclampsia that we talked about in OB part one can continue post-birth. So that about wraps us up. Again, this is one that is not, is not my forte and I'm not 100% comfortable talking about, but we did our best to get you guys some, some good information. And if you have anything that you'd like to add or any questions or spots where you feel like we screwed this up, please email us at the podcast email. And as always, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be 
sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.